0: This is a talk by Joel titled, Listening to the Stones, Talk Number 5, The Nature of Consciousness Itself. Recorded October 2011 at the Cloud Mountain Retreat Center in Castle Rock,
1: Washington. So, when we tried to find some inherently existing object, we couldn't do it. And when we tried to find some inherently existing subject, some self, We couldn't do it. What we found were impermanent phenomena in both cases. The phenomena appearing and disappearing and appearing and disappearing and the mind's ability to encircle these phenomena that seem to be related into certain sets and then name them gives us the impression that there are objects there. But when we go look, we don't find the object, we just find the phenomena rising and passing away, all impermanent. There's no continuous substance that all this is hung on. And then when we looked inside at the self, we found the same thing. We found all sorts of phenomena, we found bodily sensations, we found uh, bodily sounds, gurgles and swallows and stuff like that, sights. But we never found any actual self even when we went to see how decisions are made, because one of the strongest reasons that we feel that there is some self in here, it really feels like there is someone or some entity or something deciding things. But when we go look at a decision, actually look at it, yes, a decision is made. We can recognize that. There's a choice and a decision is made, but is there really something in there doing it? This is a wonderful practice, by the way, It can be done in your worldly life. It's actually a little difficult to do here in a meditative state because we are purposely not making decisions. We're just sitting here observing things. Uh, And I had to give you these artificial commands to even create the situation where a decision might be made. But in your worldly life, there's plenty of opportunity, and it's well worth doing because this sense that we have self-will is really, for most people, the linchpin of the whole delusion of self, this idea of volition. That's why there's such a stress in mystical traditions about surrendering your will, surrendering your will to the divine or surrendering your will to the spontaneous action of Buddha nature or the Tao or whatever it is. But it is one of the most profound teachings of all traditions. So, anyway, we didn't find any entity when we went to look for Either the object or the subject, we found impermanent phenomena. So the question is is there anything that is not impermanent? That doesn't change? That doesn't come and go? So that's what we want to try and examine this morning. If we look at the Guru Stone, everybody got your Guru Stone? We Look at it. In fact, it's better if you can put it down someplace so you're not touching it. And there's just the visual phenomena arising in consciousness. Everybody got a visual phenomena arising in consciousness? Now, close your eyes and the visual phenomena disappears. Let's flip the stone over. Now open your eyes. Now there's a different visual phenomenon. Close your eyes. Open your eyes. So the visual phenomena is coming and going. We'll try this another couple of times, but now pay attention to the consciousness in which it appears. Especially when your eyes are closed. So, there's the visual phenomena. Close your eyes. The visual phenomena is gone, but is the consciousness gone? Open your eyes. Visual phenomena appears. Consciousness is still there. Close your eyes. Visual phenomena is gone. Is the consciousness gone? Open your eyes. In all that, did the consciousness ever go? So maybe there's a clue here. Maybe all this phenomena changes, but consciousness itself doesn't change. Doesn't come and go. So that's the first thing we want to investigate this morning in a more thorough way. So, we're going to make an inquiry of this, and I'm going to give you a guided meditation. And we're going to do as we've been doing before, enter spacious awareness, and I'm going to give you some instructions of things to look for. And we're really going to pay attention now and see through all this, through all these transformations, through all these comings and goings and arisings and passings away, if consciousness itself ever arises and passes away, comes and goes. Okay? So let us uh, get position. Let's begin by stabilizing attention through concentration. Now let attention expand into the field of bodily sensations. bodily sensations are impermanent. They come and they go. But does the consciousness that is aware of them come and go? attention expand to include the sound field. Notice that sounds are impermanent. They come and they go. the consciousness that is aware of sounds come and go But attention expand to include any tastes and smells that might be present. If any tastes or smells are present, notice they are impermanent. They come and they go. is the consciousness that is aware of them impermanent does it come and go and expand to include the visual field. Blink your eyes slowly several times and notice how visual phenomena come and go. but does the consciousness that is aware of visual phenomena itself come and go? Now let attention expand to include the mental field. Phenomena come and go. Notice how the thought all phenomena come and go itself comes and goes. a few moments observing spontaneously arising thoughts and notice how they all come and they go. Now ask yourself, does the consciousness that is aware of thoughts coming and going also come and go? Now let attention expand into the total field of consciousness awareness. Observe how all phenomena and all the fields come and they go. does consciousness come and go? Now shift your attention from the phenomena arising and passing in consciousness in the foreground to the background of consciousness itself. Attend to consciousness itself and see if it ever comes or goes. So what was your experience? Did anybody see consciousness coming and going? Yes, Judith.
0: It's not consciousness coming and going, but it's like the sun um, during the day, Mm -hmm. and the sun is shining brightly, um, and the phenomenon, you know, even thoughts are coming and going, and the sun is still shining brightly. But then something happens, and it's like a cloud going, in front of the sun. It's still daylight. Consciousness is still there, but it's obscured. Well... I mean, it hasn't gone away, but it's, it's not as bright, intense, clear.
1: So this is a, a very good question, and you should ask yourself, mm-hmm. is this really a change in consciousness, or is it a change in the content of consciousness? Is the content of consciousness, does it seem brighter or dimmer or whatever? Or is it the actual consciousness that seems brighter or dimmer? We can certainly talk about we're only dimly aware of things, but there's an assumption that that there are clear things out there that we're only dimly aware of. But our immediate experience is simply the things appear dim. And if we don't make the assumption that there are objective things out there, it just means the contents of consciousness we would describe as dim and Sometimes they become sharp and sometimes they become dim and all that shifting and changing. But is the consciousness itself shifting and changing? That's the question here. And this is a question particularly you want to pursue at night. At night, our normal deluded experience of falling asleep is one of the things that convinces us most strongly that consciousness comes and goes, that somehow it belongs to this body and here's this body and we go to sleep and then consciousness goes and then the morning we wake up and consciousness comes back. That's our theory but if you watch and observe the process of falling asleep and the process of waking up and if you become lucid in the middle of the night the process of whatever state you find yourself in I think you'll find that it's more like consciousness is this space and there's a whole bunch of activity in the space that we call waking and it fades away, and then there's a period of no activity, and then more activity arises in the space, and we call that dream, and that fades away, and then in the morning, waking life arises. But does consciousness ever come and go? And I come back to this fundamental question, has anybody ever experienced unconsciousness? Have you ever been conscious of being unconscious? Yes, Maura.
0: It's interesting when you're talking about during the meditation, um, I forget exactly how you put it, but it was something about, you know, foreground and background, mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and not looking at the objects in consciousness, but just being aware of the background. You know, it was not a really hard time when you would say, you know, turn your attention to back onto consciousness, I never could, it was really frustrating for me, I never could get any kind of a handle on doing that, but somehow when like you were talking about, just um, allowing the attention somehow to be more in the background, I mean, it wasn't like, like that's some being a-ha, but there was something, some,
1: something. Whatever was it was that, quote, worked for you. Yeah, there was okay great I'm glad you brought that up some of you have heard this instruction for the first time perhaps uh, some of you have heard it many times before because I do it periodically but how many of you could follow that instruction to shift the attention from the foreground of phenomena rising and passing away to the background of just the consciousness that is aware of this phenomenon yeah. okay most of you anybody else yes
0: you know, I- about sleep, it seems like there is input when you're sleeping, bodily sensations, sounds, and sometimes you wake out of sleep because something tells you something's not right, or you have to go to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. But when you're asleep, when I'm asleep, I'm not aware of consciousness. I don't know... I mean, so I really don't know at those when I'm asleep, if consciousness is there or not, although there are indications that it is, because I come back to awareness under the, some circumstances.
1: Okay, well, you see, right now your mind is trying to figure this out like a puzzle. And since we're not uh, all about to go to sleep and do sleep yoga, why don't you not try to figure it out now, but take your questions, and tonight when you go to sleep, you know, uh, look at it. See if you can detect any time where there is no consciousness. And just try to observe as you're falling asleep and during the night. Is there ever time you say, oh, this is unconscious. Consciousness is now gone. And see if you can do that. Don't try to settle it theoretically. Try to settle it experientially.
0: Annie. Um, I just want a little uh, guide to... Uh as I was listening to your takes last year, and, and I was doing this about what we did was the consciousness in the foreground, in the background, and whatever, I always experience it as sort of a central, like it's almost a visual central, I hate to say canal, and thoughts and things always come in from the right. So it's an odd experience, and I'm wondering if I'm like... Objectifying or trying to give consciousness a place in space in my head, you know, it's a It's just what happens that I just don't know.
1: I don't know either. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you
0: work. Know, it, I mean, I, it's not troubling, except I go, wow, that's, that seems kind
1: of odd. Well, in order to be able to describe where thoughts come from, I can tell you this you have to have some kind of reference frame which somehow you've constructed yeah, to make a right and a left. You see, if we don't have a reference frame, we don't have a right or a left. So anytime there's like a sense of direction like that, there has to be some sort of, uh, you know... Uh,
0: i constructed the central thing. First.
1: Yeah, so there's, there's some overlay of a construct here, because, uh, you know, actually consciousness itself doesn't have... Intrinsic directions in it. I mean, we can create directions by creating reference frames, but there's no intrinsic direction in consciousness So well. Okay. Yes.
0: So if we don't exist actually, you know, and and that's what we found, or what I found, then what has makes and consciousness is ongoing. Then what makes sense to me, and it's not experiential, is that we're all just in consciousness all of us in the same consciousness
1: all the time I mean, I don't know well, uh, that's a very good thought and you're right, it's not directly experiential but you can make a practice out of that and see if you can find well, that's a segue here actually into our next thing so we're going to see if any people or any things are outside of consciousness but before we plunge into it, let's hear Wang Po, Zen Master These mountains, these rivers, the whole world itself, together with the sun, moon, and stars, not one of them exists outside of your minds. The vast chili-cosm exists only within you, so where else can the various categories of phenomena possibly be found? Outside of mind, there is nothing. That sounds like a pretty radical statement. So we're going to check this out. And we're going to do it in the way we've been checking out uh, all these teachings, through a direct inquiry. Now, this time I'm not going to give you a guided meditation because we've, I think, done enough of this uh, entering spacious awareness through the various fields of consciousness that you can do it on your own. But we're doing exactly the same thing that we've been doing uh, all along here. Begin with concentration and go at your own pace here. You've been having to follow my pace now. You can start to discover your own pace here. Start with concentration. When you feel your mind is reasonably stabilized, reasonably settled down, start to expand your attention from your meditation object to include the various fields, starting with the field of bodily sensations, and then the sound field, and then the taste and smell phenomena, and then the visual field, the mental field, and finally you allow attention to expand out into the total field of consciousness awareness. And as you go, see if you can find anything... Any phenomena, any object whatsoever that is outside of consciousness. And then when you arrive at spacious awareness, when attention is spread out through the total field of consciousness awareness, and you're just resting in that space of awareness, just observe. Is there anything outside of consciousness? The single question, you don't have to keep verbalizing it to yourself unless you start to drift off and you don't know what you're doing there, then you might want to say, oh yes, I'm supposed to be checking this out. Is there anything outside of consciousness? So all you have to do is observe a very relaxed, very effortless meditation. And then we'll see what the results are. Any questions about the meditation before we begin? Let us begin.
0: If you wish to follow our format, stop your player now and practice these instructions. When you've familiarized yourself with these instructions, start your player again and continue with the program.
1: did anybody find anything outside of consciousness? You did? Oh, wow. What?
0: Well, the answer is yes and no. Uh, The only thing that's not in consciousness, or is the only quack that's not in consciousness, is
1: consciousness. (laughs) Okay. Um, Yeah, go ahead. (laughs) Did you want to say more? No. I cracked that uh,
0: a little
1: bit. There's a little bit of a problem with semantics here, and now I'm cheating on you because I'm going to suddenly get technical on you, and I didn't warn you beforehand. But I said, did anybody find anything outside of consciousness? Now, is consciousness a thing? Is a question. Yes.
0: Uh, experientially, nothing is outside of. Thought, yes. thought, and my thought said, oh, well, there could be this field of consciousness, then possibly there could be another
1: one that I never think about. That's correct. Now, first of all, was your thought in consciousness? Yes. Okay. So the thought wasn't outside of consciousness. Okay. So, actually, Dr. Wolf was very careful about this. To be strictly logical, we cannot say what Wang Po there said, there's nothing outside of your minds. What we can say is it's impossible to verify anything outside of consciousness. It is unverifiable. So if we want to be really strict about this, uh, that's what we say. But generally speaking, uh, from at least from a scientific point of view, if something is unverifiable, then it's meaningless. So what? I mean, you can think of all sorts of things that you could never verify, and they won't affect your life. Yes.
0: Those correlations are just, I mean, I've heard this teaching a lot. Correlations of, you know, I was hearing all these impermanent sounds during meditation that my mind was telling me were raindrops. And, you know, I just have this conviction that if I go outside, the ground's going to be wetter than it was before. And then I'm going to draw this conclusion that it rained, even though I never saw the rain or experienced the rain. yeah you know, it's just it's just so hard to drop
1: this idea that it, that it rained you well. <coughs> know. Well you don't want to drop the idea but you want to recognize that it is an idea it's like looking up at the big dipper we correlate the stars that are appearing in consciousness, and we draw imaginary lines between them, and it forms a dipper. Right? So, there's nothing wrong with the mind doing that. But it's pretty obvious that our minds are projecting a Big Dipper onto the experience. By the way, it's an interesting experiment to go out and look at the Big Dipper and not see a dipper. When you say it's hard to drop the correlation, it's even hard when we know it's just a correlation. It's hard to drop the correlation when we see uh, faces appear in a rug. Even when we know there's no real face in the rug, we know this is the mind superimposing a face on the rug, it's really hard to make it go away. Well, the same thing is true about the correlations that we impose on our experience to think about our experience. So the only thing we want to do is recognize the correlations are correlations. They're mental correlations. Phenomena arising in the mental field, and they are different from the sensory phenomena—the sound of the raindrops, the feel of the wet loam, and all that—which are uh, sensory phenomena. That's all we're trying to do. We're not trying to get rid of uh, any ideas; just recognize idea as idea. Okay. Anybody else? Nobody found anything outside of consciousness. ahead. We are still talking as though consciousness and phenomena were separate. And that's very dualistic. Is there really consciousness and then something different from consciousness called phenomena? Well, this is what we want to explore now in this session. And the answer to the question, are phenomena and consciousness separate, is a little tricky the answer is yes and no. Uh, technically, we might say it's a kind of an asymmetrical answer. In a certain sense, yes, they are different because consciousness is whether or not any phenomena are appearing in it. And we can check this out. Uh, it's difficult, but there are ways to check it out. One of them is to become adept at entering deep states of samadhi where all phenomena disappear, or we could better say they cease to arise. So we end up in a state of pure consciousness with no phenomena rising. So we realize, all right, there's consciousness, but there are no phenomena. We could also do practices to cultivate lucidity at night, and we can actually become lucid during dreamless sleep, and we can check out whether there are phenomena arising during dreamless sleep. And we can see, well, no, there's consciousness, but there is no phenomena arising within consciousness. And as I discovered recently, or let me say I had a very vivid experience of it, during fainting, there is consciousness and no phenomena arising within it. If you have some sort of medical episode where you are... Uh, the way we normally describe it is you're passing out and you're coming to and you're passing out and you're coming to, actually, if you have been mindful of what's really going on, you realize the world disappears, the world comes back, the world disappears, the world comes back, and there's no break in the continuity of consciousness. So, uh, we can actually verify this, that there uh, are states in which there's pure consciousness but no phenomena rising in it. But... The answer is also no to the question are phenomena and consciousness separable? No, because when phenomena do arise, they are inseparable from the ground, from the consciousness that is there, which we are going to now investigate this morning. It's hard for us to investigate here the state of pure consciousness without any phenomena because we are not all adepts at entering deep states of samadhi. If we were in a Himalayan cave, and we'd all been practicing for ten years, I would say, okay, let's just all go into samadhi now and check it out. But I don't think that's very practical at this point. But we can investigate the other part of it. The inseparability of phenomena, appearances, and the consciousness in which they appear. And the great metaphor for this, or analogy for this, that you'll find in virtually all traditions, is the relationship between The ocean and waves. And the ocean can sometimes, it's rare, but sometimes can be really absolutely calm, like glass. No waves at all. Most of the time it has waves arising. So this is the asymmetry. You can have consciousness without appearances, but when you have appearances, you can't have appearances without consciousness. They are like the waves of the ocean. You can't have waves without the ocean. Here's what the Hindu Chakra says about this. The wave, the foam, the eddy, and the bubble are all essentially water. Similarly, the body and the ego are really nothing but pure consciousness. Everything is essentially consciousness, purity, and joy. So, just the way bubbles, foam, waves, and all that are nothing but water, all this phenomena, all these appearances are nothing but consciousness. Inseparable from consciousness. Here's Tibetan master Longchenpa. All the phenomena which appear in various forms are like the waves which are the same as the nature of water. The mind and the appearances do not exist as two, and they are the same in the ultimate nature. So the objects and subjects are the same in the nature of space. So all the objects and the subject that is conscious of the objects, they're all the same, like the waves in the water. And here's what Rumi says. Form was born from speech and then died. It took its wave back to the sea. Form comes out of formlessness Then it returns, for unto Allah we are all returning. So this is a really common analogy. And the point is, the distinctions between what is appearing and consciousness itself are imaginary, just like all the distinctions that we've looked at so far. It's useful, again, we'd have a very hard time giving this teaching and talking about this if we didn't make these distinctions. But we want to be clear that these distinctions are imaginary. So when we talk about phenomena appearing in consciousness as though they were two different things, as though it was a duality here, we are using imaginary distinctions to try to point to something that's beyond that distinction. Just like when you look out at the waves in the ocean. I can talk about the waves and I can talk about the ocean, but if I go look there, better yet, if I get a boat and I go rowing out to the ocean, I cannot find any line that demarks the waves from the ocean. It doesn't really exist. In fact, not only can I talk about the waves in the ocean, I can talk about all different kinds of waves. and the surfer lingo, there are like, you know, a dozen different words to describe different waves the choppy ones, the fold ones, the rolling ones, you know, all this stuff that surfers notice and discriminate because it's useful to them to do so. And so even though I can talk about them all, there really is no difference between any two waves. When I go to look, where's the boundary where one wave stops and the other wave begins? It's a boundary that we superimpose on the experience through our linguistic distinctions. So this is, again, we keep coming back to this. This is what we want to become aware of. We don't want to get rid of the distinctions. We don't want to get rid of the ideas. We don't want to get rid of the imaginary correlations we make between the the distinctions either. We want to recognize what is really going on. We want to recognize the truth of our experience. That way we can use distinctions and not be fooled by them. Then we can actually look at this more closely. Could there be objects, physical objects, without space? So, here's a gong striker. Could I have a gong striker without the physical space? Could it exist? What would it be like to have a gong striker without the physical space? It's absolutely impossible for the gong striker to exist without the space in which it stands. So are you following this? This also is um, a principle employed in Japanese ink painting. Have you ever seen those beautiful ink paintings? Well, somewhat similar to this. This is rather abstract, but <coughs> these paintings of, let's say, a mountain with a few shoots of bamboo and then most of it is like in cloud. And it's all suggested by the brushstrokes. And it's the sparsity of the brushstrokes that indicates the space. And that's often the point of the Japanese painting, especially if it comes out of the Zen tradition, is that the brushstrokes are the fingers pointing to the moon of space and the inseparability of the space and the brushstroke. So they have a spiritual value, actually. This relates back to what we talked about very early, this idea of why the universe came into being. I was a hidden treasure that longed to be known. Can formless consciousness know even itself without appearances? So, if we take this into consideration, not only are the phenomena, the appearances, inseparable from consciousness, They're actually expressions of it. In that sense, they're all attributes of the consciousness. They are the manifestations of Tao. They are the uh, self-disclosures of Allah. However you want to put it. So they have this added spiritual value that most people do not recognize. To most people, they're just appearances, you know. A tree is a tree. A rock is a rock. But if you are sensitive to it, if you're open to it, if you've glimpsed it, if you can glimpse it at all, and suddenly it's magical. Everything is a manifestation of the divine. A miraculous manifestation of the divine. An awe-inspiring manifestation of the divine. A strike me dumb manifestation of mine. I can't believe it. And it's everywhere you look. When Andrea had her awakening, right here in this room, the first thing she said that really gave me a clue that she had had this powerful awakening, she said, you can't get away from it. Like that, with that kind of... (gasps) So right here, you know, this is what Rumi calls the open secret. We're sitting in the open secret. We're sitting in the mandala. We just don't know it. And this is the testimony of all the mystics. Here's Meister Eckhart. Everything stands for God, and you see only God in all the world. Here's uh, the great Hasidic master, Menachem Nahum. The Creator's glory fills the whole earth. There is no place devoid of Him. But His glory takes on the form of garb, God is garbed in all things. Isn't that beautiful? All things are the, the, the clothing, the costume of God. Here's uh, the Hindu Shankara. No matter what a deluded man may think he is perceiving, he is really seeing Brahman and nothing else but Brahman. If you go to India, you'll find people on a search for Brahman. They go up to the caves, the Himalayas, they're in the forests, they're fasting, they're undergoing all sorts of austerities and all that, looking for Brahman. Guess what? You can't get away from Brahman. I'm not knocking the quest. I mean, if we don't see it, then we have to do something. But the truth of the matter is you cannot get away from Brahman. So no wonder you can't find Brahman. Ibn Arabi. Here's what he says. So understand there is no ontologically named thing except God. He is named by every name, described by every attribute, qualified by every description. There is nothing in being slash existence but God while the entities are non-existent. I'm going to read that again. This word ontologically named thing. That's when we name something and we think it has inherent being. Ontology means the study of being. So an ontologically named thing is, I think uh, this striker refers to some ontologically real thing called a striker. So He says, so understand that there is no ontologically named thing except God. There's nothing real except God, is what he said. When we name things, we are not naming actual things, because the only what that's real is God. He is named by every name, described by every attribute, qualified by every description. There is nothing in being slash existence but God, while the entities are non-existent. The entities that we ascribe these attributes and names and stuff to are non-existent. Are what? Empty of any inherent existence. Here's a Buddhist teaching popping up in Sufism. Again. Okay, so let's examine this in relation to the Guru stone. Let's pick it up here. Okay, so here's the stone. So Ibn Arabi says, there's no ontologically named thing except God. Well, I named this stone. And Ibn Arabi is saying, no, you think you're naming a stone a stone. You're naming God's stone when you apply stone here. You pick it up and roll it around your uh, fingers. You think that's attributes of the stone. You think of the smoothness, the weight, texture. Uh, the shape and all that. No. What Ibn Arabi is saying, these are all attributes of God. Not attributes of any stone. Smell it. Hmm. Taste it. Hmm. They're all attributes of God. If you want to know what God feels like, you're holding God in the palm of your hand. I mean, that's not the only thing God feels like. God feels like he... God feels like metal. God feels like wind. God feels like rain. This is incredible, see? This is where the mystics leave most people behind. Go, oh yeah, right, i got a bridge to say you in Brooklyn if you believe that stuff. <laughs> but mysticism is very radical. It's good to know that up towards the beginning. I mean, if you know it right away, you probably never walk in the door. But it's good to know that somewhere in the vestibule or the parlor, you know, before you get in the bedrooms where the real intimate stuff goes on. Because you might want to leave at that point. You want to say, oh, thank you very much for the tea. I think I'll uh, depart now. And that's fine. It's not a problem. See, this is the point where things start to get literal at the most amazing place. Up until now, actually, we've been talking symbols and uh, illusions and stuff. Now we start to talk uh, really directly about God. Ooh, okay. Let me... Here's Dilgo Kinsei, Tibetan master. Of all the countless teachings on many levels that make up the path, the essence is to see all appearances as the body of the deity, to hear all sounds as mantras, to recognize all thoughts as Dharmakaya, The essence of the path. Here's uh, Lali Shwari. Here's what she sings. I attain the spiritual vision by seeing God in all, even in the midst of my worldly life. So she's seen God even in the middle of her worldly life. You know, sweeping your floor. It's just as great an opportunity if you were in deep samadhi. And then here's Bonaventure, Christian mystic. Whoever is not enlightened by such splendor of created things is blind. Whoever is not awakened by such outcries is deaf. Whoever does not praise God because of all these effects is dumb. Whoever does not discover the first principle from such clear signs is a fool. Therefore, open your eyes, alert the ears of your spirit, Open your lips and apply your heart so that in all creatures you may see, hear, praise, love, and worship, glorify and honor your God. Lest the whole world rise against you. There are two things I love about this one. First of all, people accuse mystics of being anti-world, you know. Somehow they want to get away from the world and they don't like nature and they're against it. My gosh! (laughs) I mean, mystics are the first to say, you people are anti-world. What on the earth are you doing? Where do you think you are? You're in paradise, my God. You don't see it? You're blind. And I have the last line here, lest the whole world rise against you. And this is why I think our environmental crisis is a spiritual problem, not a technological problem. It's a spiritual problem because we don't see this. And consequently, we don't treat nature as though it were divine self-disclosure. We've totally lost that. And we are so insatiably hungry to become happy and we think more and more stuff is going to do it. And we can't stop consuming. And we're wrecking it. So in a certain sense, nature is rising against us. You know, I'm not talking like a fundamental preacher who says, well, Hurricane Katrina destroyed New Orleans because they put up with gays or something. It's not like a will of judgment. But, you know, it's a karmic law. I mean, if you tear down your house to keep the fire going, pretty soon the house is going to stop protecting you from the elements. There's going to be nothing left of it. So it's interesting that there's a little bit of an environmental prophecy in there, if you like. But in any case, you get what he's he's pointing to. Everything is speaking of God, if we could but hear it. So, Let's spend this afternoon contemplating the inseparability first of our guru and consciousness, but then gradually all phenomena and consciousness. So again, I'm not going to guide you because by now you should be able to enter spacious awareness, should be able to start with concentration and go through the six sense fields expanding each time, including more and more phenomena into your field of awareness until finally you get to the total field of consciousness awareness. And then put your stone someplace in front of you because we're going to be using this now. Your stone has more to teach here. This isn't the end, you know. Then when we get to spacious awareness, then we start by Contemplating the guru, and is the guru inseparable from consciousness? And once we've uh, come to some decision about that, then you might want to expand attention here and see if there's anything that's inseparable. Raindrops, uh, coughing, sneezing, sensations, whatever is arising, even thoughts. Even thoughts, inseparable. All manifestations of the divine. Okay? So, you ready? Here we go.
0: You've now reached the end of this talk. Continue practicing at least once a day until you are thoroughly familiar with these instructions. Then continue with the next talk for more teachings and instructions.